Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back for part two of our series on the possible evidence for memory and learning in plants. Now, this is one of our series where if you haven't listened to part one yet, you really should go back and do that one first, since we clear a lot of the ground for what we're going to be talking about today. This is one that I think is going to be kind of hard to jump in in the middle. But... In that past episode, for a refresher, we talked about a plant called known as the sensitive plant or the humble plant, the shame plant, the touch-me-not scientific name Mimosa pudica, which is one of the few plants in the world that displays rapid movement or movement on the time scale usually associated with animal life. And we talked about experiments from 2014 
that appeared to show a form of rudimentary learning called habituation in these plants, where, for example, if you take a potted mimosa pudica and you drop it the exact same way over many training sessions, it will adapt so that it no longer closes its leaves defensively in response to a drop, but it will still close its leaves in response to other types of disturbance. So if this type of finding holds up to scrutiny and replication, it would be evidence that even though this plant has no brain, it has some kind of internal mechanism for learning from experience in order to maximize its fitness. And of course, at some level, learning requires a form of what we would think of as memory in order to learn from the past. You have to have some way of being changed by the past to store the past within you in an organized way that can influence future behavior, which, uh, of course, we do with our brains. But if plants in some cases also do this, uh, it's a great question. What is the mechanism? They obviously don't have brains. And uh, finally, in the last episode, we tried to disentangle different claims about so-called plant cognition, which is a controversial concept. Uh, we noted that memory is not the same thing as reasoning, which is not the same as consciousness, which is not the same as emotion or communication or or uh, or, or or plant uh, <laughs> like psychic uh, plant mind reading, which some people have also uh, claimed evidence of uh, without without much justification. And uh, with the the final point being that evidence for one of these traits is not necessarily evidence for others. But today we're going to look at some more research that has been interpreted as showing plant memory or plant cognition in the past decade, as well as some reaction and criticism to that. Yeah. Now, in the last episode, I, I mentioned some music. I mentioned both uh, Celtic Frost's metal album, Two Megatherian, uh, and uh, Mort Garson's Plantasia. And uh, but both were kind of offhand references, uh, and afterwards I was looking into it a little bit more. And I was, first of all, delighted to see that Plantasia is more widely regarded as a classic than I thought it was. Um, I, I, I was familiar with Mort Garson's work, and um, you know, I was delighted that his work had recently been reissued by uh, Sacred Bones Records. I think I had to make oh. do with some... some uh, uh, so, some some bad copies back in the day. Sorry, refresh on the Mort, on the Mort Garson album. It was uh, so Mort Garson was a, a pioneer of electronic music and synth work, and uh, he had a few different monikers that he used. He did some uh, like some occult sounding sounds and so forth. But he also put out this album Plantasia, which was music to be played for your plants. Uh, <laughs> very much jumping in on this uh, the secret lives of plants. Um, uh, his, uh, uh, well, I don't want to say hysteria. We'll say um, popularity during the 1970s. Yeah. And uh, as as uh, we discussed in that episode, and we'll discuss a little bit here. Uh, yeah, th this this album is not actually going to help your plants out. Any your plants do not care about Mort Garson's discography as much as you do or I do. Um, but it is a very nice album for human listeners. Sure. And hey, as I said in the last episode, even if it doesn't actually do anything for your plants, which it probably doesn't, it, no reason not to play it for your plants. I mean, that sounds fun. Yeah. So I was delighted to see that. I even noticed there was a New York Times article about uh, this album's popularity and its increased popularity, I think, in part due to the reissue, but also they were making the point due to the resurgence in interest in houseplants during the pandemic, you know, mm. um, I don't. I don't know about about you, but I, I think I don't know if we actually picked up that. No, we we did pick up more house plants. I think some of them were gifted to us 
but we have all sorts of little succulents like hanging out all over the house that we accumulated over the past couple of years. I don't know the name for them, but Rachel has some kind of houseplant that uh, repeatedly produces buds, like I guess stalks will come off of it, and you can separate them and turn them into their own new potted version of that same plant, kind of uh-huh. like a, uh, getting a gremlin wet or something. <laughs> uh, just, uh, you know, they, they, they repopulate and go all over the place. So I, I think we have had at least proliferation of existing plants. Yeah, and, and houseplants are great, no doubt about it. Uh, but at the, at this, on the, the other hand, I was looking around for stuff on this, and I was kind of taken aback at just how much content there is out there on the internet regarding playing music for plants. And while I didn't find anyone actually exalting the benefits of playing uh, Celtic Frost for your uh, philodendrons, there are pages talking about the merits of different musical genres, um, (laughs) alleged merits, I should say, uh, for plant growth, including the idea that heavy metal can improve plant mass and fruit taste, provided that it's not too noisy or presumably (laughs) too heavy. Beautiful. What is the best thrash metal for your plants? (laughs) I've got to assume downstream of this, some people who believe in this really, they think their plants have individual tastes, like my plants really love Motorhead. Yeah, I mean, I think we said before, death metal uh, bands need to get in on beans and realize that uh, in the folkloric canon, bean plants are closely associated with the world of the dead, and this should be embraced. Sure. Now, um... All this being said, uh, yeah, uh, not not every source popping up on the subject is something that that I would take to the bank at all. But plants do produce sound vibrations and can respond to sound vibrations. Now, I got interested in this idea, thinking about plants responding to sound, and I started wondering about a question. I think this is always something good to wonder about when you hear a claim about a life form. You think. What would be the original ecological relevance of this? Like in in the actual environment, not in a, you know, in a house or a lab or something, why would this kind of stimulus be relevant? So I looked it up in the scientific literature and I did find some interesting examples. One of them was a paper published in Ecologia in 2014 by Heidi M. Apple and Reginald B. Cocroft called Plants Respond to Leaf Vibrations Caused by Insect Herbivore Chewing. And this study found that if you reproduce the sounds made by a caterpillar feeding on a leaf and then expose those sounds to what's known as a thale cress plant, the plant will respond by producing higher levels of uh, glucosinolate and anthocyanin, which are defensive chemicals. So if this finding is sound, then the plant does actually detect sound and it is ecologically relevant. Sound is an indicator of nearby predation, the the plant is it is being threatened by what is producing this uh, this caterpillar eating sound. Yeah, and there's another study that I believe came out the same year, conducted by Italian botanist uh, Stefano uh, Mancuso, who found that roots uh, could seek out buried. Um, pipes of running water seemingly attracted to the sound. So um, again, if, this, if, if, if these uh, results um, hold up, uh, basically the idea here is you have water running through a pipe that is otherwise you know, completely set apart from the, di- from the dirt, from the soil, uh, and yet the roots are, are moving towards the water anyway. Uh, how would they know the water is there? The idea is that they're picking up on the sound, they're picking up on the vibrations. Right. And so, again, you could wonder, how would that be ecologically relevant? Uh, it seems plausible to me. I mean, there are all kinds of, like, underground water flows, and so and those would, of course, produce vibrations. 
Right. Now, and it, you might then wonder, well, okay, if there's a sound of running water in my ambient music, does that mean my plant wants it? Um, <laughs> I, I think that's a more, maybe that's a, a kind of a simple, um, simplified argument to make. Uh, I think you get into a lot of discussions about like the differences between how the, the plant is quote unquote hearing and how we are quote unquote hearing something. Right. I mean, I would say it's hard to imagine that there's a evolutionarily justified reason a plant would respond to music in particular. Uh, but of course, there are probably good reasons for plants to respond to certain types of noise. So to be very generous, I guess it's possible that in some cases, some types of music might accidentally trigger something like a tropism or a stress response in a plant where uh, where it might make the plant I don't know, look different in some way that the owner would be able to detect. It's possible. I'm sort of skeptical, even as far as that goes, like the accidental byproduct of certain types of music. But mm -hmm. as I said in the last episode, again, if you want to play music for your plants, go for it. Yeah, I, I don't think it makes sense to literally believe it's doing anything for the plant itself, but it sounds like a, a perfectly wonderful activity. Yeah, especially Prince. Everybody loves Prince, so it <laughs> makes sense that plants would love Prince as well. Uh, now, this is just one of the senses that plants uh, seem to possess. Um, I've read that plants have somewhere between 15 and 20 distinct senses, and some of these can be compared to our basic set of human senses. Uh, in addition to sound, as Michael Pollan points out in his wonderful article, uh, uh, The Intelligent Plant from The New Yorker in 2013, uh, we have, of course, on the human side, smell and taste, and plants uh, do seem to sense and respond to chemicals in the air or on their bodies. Uh, we have sight, and plants uh, react differently to various wavelengths of light uh, as well as to shadow. So plants like us live in a world of, uh, of uh, periodic uh, light and darkness, and of course they depend heavily upon uh, the, the, the light uh, the, uh, because of photosynthesis. So it, ma it makes sense that they, this would be in place. And then we have the sense of touch, and a vine or root seems to know when it encounters a solid object. So plant roots have been found to be able to sense gravity, moisture, light, pressure, firmness. Uh, so, you know, it's like they're encountering something that seems to be a solid as opposed to something they can continue to grow in mm -hmm. uh, into. Uh, volume, nitrogen, phosphorus, salt, various toxins. Uh, a lot of times, uh, Pollen points out that you know, the roots, uh, the toxins are going to be first encountered by those roots. Uh, microbes, as well as chemical signals from other plants. Yeah. And in that, just a little bit, you get into the realm of communication. Yeah. And so my read on this, this domain is that while a lot of the other things in so-called plant cognition could be considered pretty controversial, even some of the stuff with better evidence for it, like the memory stuff we're talking about, that's still somewhat controversial, but, uh, but plant sensation, plant, the plants being able to mm -hmm. gather information about all kinds of different things in their environment, that seems to me to be utterly uncontroversial. That's just, they clearly do that. Right. Now, a lot of the more controversial and, um, uh, and it's just flat out unbelievable stuff you encounter out there about plants listening to music and so forth. This is still stem stemming from that 1973, uh, the Secret Life of Plants book by Tompkins and Bird that we we talked about in the, the first episode, um, a popular work of mostly pseudoscience uh, that was also a huge setback for legitimate research. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we should also point out that and make the, the, the point here, too, that there was, of course, 
movement in the field of, of plant uh, uh, research into plant senses and and you know potentially plant intelligence uh, decades earlier before uh, before Baxter before these uh, uh, these authors wrote this book uh, for instance um, decades before this scientist uh, Jagadesh Chandra Bose demonstrated that plants were aware of their environment and that they responded to electrical stimulation sure but then comes the secret life of plants, and uh, it, it was interesting. I was, I was reading what what Pollen had to say about it in the, in that article, and he points out that this book may have resulted in the self censorship of researchers that were touching on areas of plant cognition or anything that hinted at similarities between plant and animal senses. Uh, Pollen writes, "Quote." Americans began talking to their plants and playing Mozart for them, and no doubt many still do. This might seem harmless enough. There will probably always be a strain of romanticism running through our thinking about plants. Luther Burbank and George Washington Carver both reputedly talked to and listened to the plants they did such brilliant work with. But in the view of many plant scientists, the the secret life of plants has done lasting damage to their field. Yeah, and so you can understand how this would happen. So there is a there is a very uh, culturally popular work of of largely based on pseudoscience or not well founded claims about the uh, about the intelligence or cognition of plants, and then for decades after that, uh, you would have some reticence to get into thematically similar research areas, even if you did have a better evidential grounding for them. Yeah, I have to say it reminds me a little bit of the situation with dolphin communication research coming out in the 60s and 70s with its reputation somewhat um, tarnished or, or at least endangered uh, uh, you know, by some perspectives uh, by John C. Lilly's work. And, uh, and also it reminds me a bit of the state of psychedelic research coming out of the same time period. Mm. Um, though, of course, uh, um, here with psychedelics, there was the added... Um, situation of these substances becoming federally outlawed. So no one was outlawing speaking to plants or playing music for them um, after uh, The Secret Life of Plants came out. But we can see how the whole affair became somewhat distracting and off-putting to serious researchers. You know, you, you're, you're very, this is your life's work. You don't want it to be associated with this work of pseudoscience, with this popular conception um, of, of what plants are doing, mm-hmm. um, etc. Yeah, I can totally see the parallel to psychedelic research because yeah, yeah in, in recent years, there's been a thaw on psychedelic research and there's more legitimate uh, experiment being done with them. But I think for a long time, yeah, it wasn't just the law. There was a, I think, a scientific stigma about them because there had been a, a lot of the early work on psychedelics was clearly done by people who were not practicing <laughs> unbiased objective science, but had become sort of psychedelic evangelists and were, yes. were, were dedicated uh, proponents of psychedelics and were just like, it, how can I make them look good? I'll, I'll do anything. Yeah, to Timothy Leary, to, to be yeah. clear, to, uh, being the, the major uh, figure uh, that fits that classification. And I have to say, in, in my very brief survey of uh, some of this plant cognition stuff, one thing that does make me a little suspicious, perhaps unfairly, um, of even the more legitimate-seeming plant cognition research is that plant cognition concepts seem to attract partisans who, uh, at least as far as I can tell, sometimes overextend what can be concluded based on a piece of research. Like, you could look at a single study about you know habituation or something that looks like learning or memory in plants – 
and conclude from that that this means plants are conscious, they can think, they can read my mind, they have a soul or so something like that, uh, you know, over-extrapolating from actually what is a, a fairly contained result. Or I think also you see examples of uh, some people, and I'm, I'm not accusing uh, the, the researchers themselves of this, but more like people who are excited about this research mm -hmm. and proponents. Uh, people who want to use plant cognition research to prove ideas they've already acquired elsewhere, like uh, you know, ideas about like a universal life spirit per permeating all things or something, or who take on a kind of uh, intellectual martyr persona, like uh, the, uh, the closed-minded ac academy wants to destroy the truth, uh, all of which are major red flags. Uh, yeah. But, of course, it, it's something I've noticed more in the fans of plant cognition research than in the research itself, so I, I wouldn't hold that against the studies we're about to talk about. Yeah, anytime a, a science is, is used to advance a non-scientific, um, you know, say a theology or uh, some sort of an ideology, uh, you get into murky territory, even if said um, theology or ideology isn't, at least on the surface, something that's particularly harmful, even if it's, yeah, something like, oh, all life forms are connected on Earth, you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, so nothing, nothing wrong with believing that. It's just like this study does not show that. Right, right. But the situation is there is a lot of wonderfully impressive evidence um, on the, the, the different ways that the plants sense their environment, they compete with each other, communicate, and much more. And so th this, this research did continue and, uh, and continues to this day. A pollen points to a shifting point around the year 2006. This is when an article came, that came out in Trends in Plant Science by six scientists who were uh, active in this field of research, and they proposed a new field be established, plant neurobiology. <laughs> And Pollen writes that uh, more than a decade after this, uh, this term was first proposed, uh, the plant science community was still somewhat split on all of this, with some arguing that this was a necessary step in the right direction of reconsidering what constitutes intelligence. And, and indeed, this is some, we see similar discussions going on regarding the likes of ants and slime molds, the ideas of, you know, emergent uh, intelligence, intelligence without brains, uh, you know, getting outside of the sort of, um, you know, basic human and animal conception of what intelligence is. Right. Uh, and of course, this is also important when we get into, you know, discussions of artificial intelligence and contemplations of what alien intelligence could consist of. Well, this also recalls other types of research along these lines, not in plants, but in, say, animals or parts of animals in which a brain is not present. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we, we did a couple of episodes about uh, the the research perhaps indicating that certain types of flatworms could learn without a brain or that part of their body when cut off could retain memories without the brain present. Uh, it's an older series, so I know I'm, I'm forgetting some details, but uh, if you want the full uh, story on that. The, the pair of episodes we did, I think, were called Devourer of Memories. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. 
Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So anyway, plant neurobiology. Uh, some people, some, some researchers in this field, very much behind the idea of this classification, while others considered it kind of a backslide to the 70s, you know, saying, mm-hmm. look, we're, we're trying to get past the stigma of the secret life of plants. Um, this just dredges it all back up again. Though, though to be clear, none of the, these plant neurobiology proponents were making these uh, outrageous claims about telepathy or, or plants having emotions. Uh, and the sort of intelligence they're proposing is more in line with the emergent modes of intelligence that we're discussing here. Now, one of the key arguments for reconsidering the, the, the lives of plants um, actually comes down to big revelations made through time-lapse footage, or if, if not uh, key to the arguments, key to, to, to uh, ways of, um, of illustrating and, um, uh, and, uh, and studying the plants in question. By speeding up long shots of growing stems and leaves and vines, we're able to sort of translate that time scale of plants into the time scale of human beings. And it's not just a matter of, oh, look, if you, you speed up the, the footage, it looks like a vine is crawling. Now the vine is kind of like a snake, and a snake's an animal, and now I'm viewing the, the plant as more of a, you know, a rational being sort of thing. Uh, though I guess that's in, in, inherently part of it, at least to the, you know, the casual viewer. Uh, you're flipping around on the TV, and you happen to come across uh, you know, one of these like Planet Earth documentaries, and you see you know, brilliant uh, footage like that. But in various experiments, it actually allows us, this kind of footage allows us to better consider environmental interactions. So one example that Paul has brought up before, I believe he, he uh, I think he brings it up in, if not in this article, he brings it up in some of his books, brings it up in uh, some, um, some video interview footage that was aired at the World Science Festival several years back. Uh, but you have bean plants that are competing for a single pole on which to grow. And uh, when you when you speed up that footage and you watch the, the time lapse of it, you can see them competing. You can see them both going after the same pole. You can see one uh, claiming the pole and then the other uh, retreating, you know, giving up mm. the fight, saying, all right, fair enough, you've got it. And so th- this, you know, this sort of reaction uh, to competition, uh, you know, rather than inanimate objects, is key to, to, some, to many of these studies. Like this seems to be an area where plants are, are even more likely to, to have this sort of uh, uh, rapid response. Yes, though, of course, this invites, uh, I think, highly relevant and interesting questions about what intelligence actually is. Intelligence is a concept that is notoriously difficult to define. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because, I mean, just think about it for a second. How would you define intelligence? It, it's clear, like, there, there are some things that, seem very clearly suggested by the concept. And one of them I think is interesting has to do with speed. 
intelligence clearly has something to do with the rate of things because uh like a you know a an animal that solves a maze quickly, we, we look at that behavior and we say, yeah, that's indicative of intelligence. But a slime mold that solves a maze slowly, we look at that and say, yeah, that, that doesn't so much look like intelligence. So our intuitions have something to do with speed. But I would also say another part is um, I think we tend to assume that intelligence involves the uh, the selection of behaviors or acquisition of goals in ways that are not strictly instinctually programmed, but are somehow adaptive to individual situations. Though then again, that's that's often difficult to detect. Like when you see time-lapse footage of a beanstalk competing for a pole and then reacting to the pole already being claimed – I don't is is that a purely genetically programmed instinctual reaction or should you think of that as uh in some way individually adaptive or reactive to the specific situation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean it, it, so, so much regarding intelligence and certainly cognition, uh, you know, it comes back to the old idea that it's just so hard to put aside the human perception of the thing. It's so hard to uh, uh to to even think about say intelligence in our like household pets without mm. comparing it to ourselves yeah it's uh it's it's tricky now uh, this this uh, you know coming back to the idea of of neurobiology plant neurobiology uh those opposed to this notion um have frequently stated well okay plants just simply do not have neuron synapses or a brain uh though as pollen points out legitimate scientists in this field are not making that claim they're only <laughs> suggesting that there might be something uh analogous to uh, a brain uh, to uh to neurons etc um so Pollen speaks with plant biologist Lincoln Taze, who uh, opposes the idea of plant neurobiology uh, as a sort of uh, animism, which uh, takes the realities of uh, both short and long-term electrical signaling and neurotransmitter-like chemicals in plants, and then uh, the, the argument is over-interprets these realities, ultimately leading to, uh, to quote, anthropomorphizing, ph uh, philosophizing, and wild speculations. Yeah. And I suppose I, I can see the, like the valid point to be made between these these two sides, right? I mean, for instance, we often talk about evolution on the show, and it's very easy to fall into the trap of anthropomorphizing evolution, uh, discussing it as if it has a will. Uh, you know, this is the sort of thing that can make it easier to comprehend what we're talking about. It can make it easier to explain some of what's happening. Um, drive home what makes it interesting and making it make it exciting, but you can also do injustice to the appreciation of what it actually is, either subtly or overtly. Yeah, exactly. And likewise, it seems to me that yeah, com comparing plants to animals, it can help explain, it can help excite, it can force us to reconsider outdated notions and limitations about what plants are and what they're capable of. But you can also potentially get into those murky waters. So I'm not saying I think either side is is totally in the right here, but I can see why there is an issue. Yeah. But Pollen drives home that, yeah, there are some very strong feelings among plant biologists about all of this, uh, which actually results in at least a little more heat and name calling than usually encounter in the sciences. Uh, but perhaps it's not all bad. Uh, Pollen writes, quote, the controversy is less about the remarkable discoveries of recent plant science than about how to interpret and name them. Whether behaviors observed in plants which look very much like learning, memory, decision-making, and intelligence deserve to be called by those terms or whether those words should be re reserved exclusively for creatures with brains. Yeah, that absolutely tracks with my experience reading about a lot of this plant cognition stuff. That either way, you have some very interesting 
experimental results, but a lot of the conflict seems to be in arguing about what those results mean and what is a reasonable way to characterize them. Yeah. Now, um, on, on the topic of, of plants and brains, uh, you might wonder, well, why don't they have a brain? Uh, perhaps you've played a video game before where you have to blast the vital organs out of some sort of monster plant in order to defeat it. Um, why does that not seem to be the case? Why is the reality instead that a plant can lose up to around 90% of its body without being killed? I mean, this, this all comes down to the fact that plants uh, are, um, are, are stationary. They, they stay in one spot. I mean, with some, um, you know, they, they are rooted to the ground. We have some situations where, yes, plants can travel and, uh, to varying degrees. But for the most part, where the plant takes root, the plant stays. The plant can't run away. It's got to be ready to sacrifice uh, large portions of its body. And so it, it simply doesn't make sense for it to evolve some sort of a centralized, irreplaceable, and, uh, and sensitive organ like this. Um, the, the sessile lifestyle requires different approaches to, uh, to problem solving. Um, and uh, it also ends up being one of the reasons that you have such a robust biochemical uh, weapons, why it has such a, such a robust biochemical arsenal. Uh, and the, the, plant, the power here for plants are famous, you know, far, far more opponent than anything you'll find in animals. And it's why so much of human medicine is based in, okay, I have this ailment, which plant should I eat? And how much of that plant <laughs> yeah. should I eat in order to fight it? Yeah, another way to put that is just that the, the plant kingdom is full of internal chemicals that have potent effects on the physiology of animals. Yeah, uh, and of course, uh, Pollen has written about this quite a bit, including the book The Botany of Desire. Uh, but in this New Yorker article, uh, he summarizes the, the biochemical arsenal quite, quite nicely. He says, unable to run away, plants deploy a complex molecular vocabulary to signal distress, deter or poison enemies, and recruit animals to perform various services for them. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, I think he puts it uh, quite well there. It's almost like sort of asking yourself, well, okay, I have a, a computer system. Why doesn't the computer system have a knife? Uh, why doesn't it have a club? Um, it should. It should, right? Well, no, it has these other things, and it has them to, uh, uh, you know, to, all these other defenses are in place because it's, it's fighting a different type of battle uh, in a, on, a, on a different scale. So, again, yeah, so much of, the, of, of what makes the plant different, you know, we can look at the time scale uh, certainly is a, is a huge factor, but also the fact that it is a sessile organism. Yeah, and so if a plant does indeed contain something that is it could legitimately be considered intelligence, it would need a different kind of substrate to contain that intelligence than than uh, the human brain, which is a centralized command center. Uh, you know, because again, like you said, the plant might get ninety percent of it might get eaten, and then it needs to be able to grow back. So, if you allow for the concept of plant intelligence, it would probably need to somehow be more modular or distributed rather than housed in a command center like the human brain. And so what would some of these uh, these physical substrates or systems be? I think that is largely unknown, though there are some interesting ideas. Like in the previous episode, uh, one of the papers we looked at, the one that looked at habituation in Mimosa pudica, it hypothesized one of the possible substrates of, of uh, plant memory formation could be what are called calcium ion channels within the, the plant's tissues, which can form these kind of uh, uh, sensory chains throughout the plant's body. Uh, but it's, it's still unknown. But, but, but I, I guess uh, we should look at at least one more study, look at some more lab research. 
So uh, in the previous study we looked at, the one from 2014 in the last episode, it found uh, apparent demonstration of a very rudimentary form of learning known as habituation in these sensitive plants that could close their leaves. And habituation could be defined as the diminishment of a programmed reaction to a repeated stimulus. So maybe you jump with fright when you hear a, a sudden clattering sound behind you. Most people would. But if that clattering sound is repeated every five minutes, you will eventually stop jumping with fright. It, you will become accustomed to it. You will just start ignoring it because you've become habituated. And this doesn't require conscious effort. It, it just happens unconsciously, naturally, when you're exposed to the same salient stimulus over and over again. What seems salient at first has been encountered enough times that your body's just been trained to no longer regard it as salient. It's just noise. It's background. But of course, there are other types of learning and memory that could, of course, be considered more complex. So could plants actually demonstrate any of these other forms of uh, memory as well? The next study I want to talk about looked at whether you could find evidence of classical conditioning in plants. Classical conditioning is one of the big concepts in behavioral psychology. I'd say it is one of the, the biggest discoveries of psychology in the, in the last, uh, I don't know about the last, the 20th century. It is a type of unconscious learning usually observed in animals in which you repeatedly pair a salient stimulus with a neutral stimulus. And over time, the animal will eventually respond to the previously neutral stimulus the way they respond to the salient one. So a few concrete examples. The original one is the story of Pavlov's dogs. Uh, this goes back to the Russian physiologist Ivan Pavlov, who lived 1849 to 1936. He was studying digestion in dogs, and he started to notice that the dogs in his lab would drool not only when their food was in sight, but when they saw the specific lab assistant who always fed them. So the production of saliva in the presence of food is a natural, unconditioned response. That's just something that makes sense for the body to do. The saliva will be useful once you start eating. But the dogs come to associate the assistant with food. So their glands start jacking up the saliva when they see and smell that specific person who feeds them, even though the person themselves is not actually food. Uh, and it, of course, can be any stimulus. Uh, the, the classic example is a sound, such as a bell or a metronome. So if I give you a painful electric shock every time uh, I start playing We Built This City by Starship, <laughs> uh, you will start to have a reaction to the song without the shock. Even if there's no shock, you hear that first line and you'll you'll probably freeze or wince. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean! Huh? Oh! Oh! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. 
It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, given that there is some preliminary evidence that at least some plant species can exhibit habituation, would it be possible to show this other kind of memory-based learning in plants? Can plants be classically conditioned to associate a neutral cue with a biologically salient cue? Uh, so the study I want to mention was published in Nature Scientific Reports in 2016 by Monica Gagliano, Vladislav uh, Vyasovsky, Alexander Borbelli, Mavra Grimonprez, and Marshall uh, Depchinsky, and it's called Learning by Association in Plants. So the authors justify their investigation by explaining that they think there would, in fact, be evolutionary pressure on plants to show associative learning. So much like the question we asked earlier about sounds and and stuff in plants, it's worth thinking, is there actually an ecologically relevant reason for the creature you're studying to have the ability you're looking for? And uh, so they write, quote, in complex and ever-changing environments, resources such as food are often scarce and unevenly distributed in space and time. Therefore, utilizing external cues to locate and remember high-quality sources allows more efficient foraging, thus increasing chances for survival. Associations between environmental cues and food are readily formed because of the tangible benefits they confer. While examples of the key role they play in shaping foraging behaviors are widespread in the animal world, the possibility that plants are also able to acquire learned associations to guide their foraging behavior has never been demonstrated. Okay, so the the same ability to discern and make these associations would potentially be useful for plants, we just haven't documented evidence of it yet. And this study explored the question with the use of a different plant than the other one. We're not talking about Mimosa pudica anymore. In this case, they looked at seedlings of the garden pea plant, or Pisum sativum. Now, it's worth clarifying that the plant behavior studied in this experiment occurs on a different time scale than the ones we talked about in the previous episode. In the last episode, uh, there were uh, there were examples of the the few plants with the ability to move rapidly, such as the Venus flytrap or Mimosa pudica, and these rapid movements were examples of what are called nastic reflexes, reflexes that are independent of the direction of the stimulus, and they're just guided by the plant's body form. Nastic movements were contrasted with what are called tropisms, which tend to be slower movements but are stimulus-directed. And the most common plant tropism you will have observed, pretty much everybody's seen this, is phototropism, growing towards a light source, which totally makes sense for a plant because light provides the energy that powers photosynthesis. So you can roughly think of a plant growing toward light, much like an animal moving toward a source of food. And that's what this 2016 experiment was studying. Not nastic reflexes, but tropisms. Growth in the direction of a biologically salient stimulus, in this case, light. So the first experimental setup looked like this. Uh, The authors write, quote, 
In the first experiment, pea seedlings, uh, 45 of them, were entrained to an 8-hour light, 16-hour dark cycle for 5 to 8 days. In the subsequent 3-day training period, they were kept in darkness, with the exception of 1-hour light exposures during the 3 daily training sessions. And during this training period, the seedlings, uh, they would place them in what's known as a Y maze. So to picture this, you think of a Y-shaped pipe. The seedling is down at the bottom in the, in the single channel part of the tube. And then above it, the tube forks off into two arms. And then there are two different training conditions. One in which the seedlings are exposed to a light source from one arm of the tube with a fan blowing on them from the same arm. And then there's another test condition in which they are exposed to a light source from one arm and a fan blowing on them from the opposite arm. So we have the light associated with a fan or a light associated with being opposite the fan. So if the plants are capable of classically conditioned associations, one group should learn that the airflow from a fan is positively correlated with food. So it should start to associate a fan with food. And then the other will learn that the airflow is negatively correlated with food, and it should associate going in the opposite direction of the fan with food. And to make the direction of the incoming light unpredictable, its direction was repeatedly switched around during the training period, though its association or lack of association uh, with the fan was kept consistent with each plant. And after this training period, the plants were further subdivided uh, to put some in test groups and the other in the control group. And the two test groups would be exposed to a fan from one direction or the other without the light source along with it. The authors write, quote, In this group, to control for the influence of innate phototropic response, the fan was placed in the arm opposite to last light exposure in the fan plus light group, and on the arm of the last light exposure in the fan versus light group. So that was the second is when they were on opposite sides of the Y maze. Quote, The seedlings of the control group were left undisturbed. On the morning after the testing day, we visually inspected the seedlings and recorded the arm of the maze they had grown into. So what did they find? Well, in the control group, this is the group that got no fan exposure in the test phase, so no fan, 100% of the plants grew in the direction of the most recent light exposure. Wherever the light came from last, that's where they went. But in the test groups, the authors report that the majority of seedlings did indeed show a conditioned response. So in the group that had been uh, trained with the fan and the light on the same side, 62% of them grew toward the fan without the light. And in the group that had been trained with the fan and the light on opposite sides, 69% grew away from the fan. So if this holds up, it would appear to show associative learning in plants, uh, a, a type of learning that in the majority of cases prevails over the basic reflexive tropism to grow in the direction of wherever the light came from last. But of course, it's a good question. Does this study actually hold up? We, we'll come and come back to that in a minute here. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention, though, is that uh, there were also subsequent experiments in the same study, and the authors found that the associative learning only succeeded when it took place during the, quote, daytime from the plant's perspective, um, given its training regimen, which the authors suggest means that there are metabolic demands on the learning process. 
Quote, this experiment in which plants were trained at three different time periods within 24 hours revealed that the learning effect disappears when training occurred during the evening hours when light would not normally be available. This finding is particularly intriguing and bolsters the argument that associative learning is an adaptive response that is only utilized during daylight hours when it is most useful via an internal circadian clock. Which is interesting because that also uh, invokes a sort of second order type of thing that some people would have called a, a type of plant intelligence, which is its uh, ability to measure spans of time. Mm. Anyway, in the end, the authors of this study, they say, quote, our results show that associative learning is an essential component of plant behavior. We conclude that associative learning represents a universal adaptive mechanism shared by both plants, uh, animals and plants. Now, this was in 2016. And I did find a study following up on this and attempting a replication and failing. So the uh, attempted replication was by Casey Markle, published in eLife, called Lack of Evidence for Associative Learning in Pea Plants. The year was 2020. Pretty straightforward. The author tried to repeat the 2016 experiment. They repeated the protocol described in the first experiment, and they write, quote, However, a replication of the protocol failed to de uh, demonstrate the same result calling for further verification and study before mainstream acceptance of this paradigm-shifting phenomenon. This replication attempt used a larger sample size and fully-blinded analysis. And of course, uh, both of those things are always good. Larger samples are good. Blinded analysis is always good. I wasn't 100% uh, sure exactly what that meant in this case, but I think it would mean that whoever compiled and analyzed the results of the experiment had no way of knowing which groups the subjects were in, which would uh, help prevent any possible contamination, intentional or unintentional, by experimenter bias. So we're, we're in, the, in a middle ground here. One study gets a positive result, a follow-up attempt does not. So how do we sort it out? Well, actually, the authors of the original study replied, publishing a follow-up comment in the same journal, uh, they essentially, to, to summarize their argument, they essentially say that the experiment may not have worked in the replication attempt because of some crucial differences in methodology, mainly that the unconditioned stimulus, in this case light, was not tightly controlled enough, and that they criticized some things about how the, uh, the plants had been mounted inside their growth case, and the idea that light from one tube may have been penetrating into other tubes, making a kind of light, noisy environment, that there were too many light sources, and this would introduce randomness into the results. So to put it in terms of the Pavlov's dog example, this might be a kind of rough comparison, but uh, the unconditioned stimulus in Pavlov's dogs would be food. So if you were to have uh, poor control of the unconditioned stimulus in that case, it would be kind of like imagining that the dogs had constant ambient access to food. They were just food bowls constantly full throughout the room they're in. In that case, would they salivate when they saw an assistant coming in to put some more food in one of the bowls? Well, if they've, they've just always got food anyway, probably not, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about dogs. Some, <laughs> I feel like sometimes my cat can be kind of like that, where it's like, really? You have food, and here's more food. Now you're excited for this? How about the food you already have? I trust the researchers. Right. Well, if, if they've just got food anytime they want it, right, mm -hmm. then they wouldn't associate the, re, the, the assistant coming in to fill the food bowls with them getting the food. It would just, you know, that, that they would just get the food whenever they want. True, true. So that, that's what the authors of the original study argued. But then there was a response to the response uh, in the same journal again where Markle came back and argued for a number of technical reasons that the differences they highlighted are unlikely to explain the different outcomes. 
Quote, despite considerable effort to match the experimental details of the 2016 experiment, the replication attempt did not find evidence for associative learning in pea plants. Of course, this does not rule out the existence of such learning, and I sincerely hope that future research demonstrates the phenomenon to be reproducible. Uh, so I feel like we're kind of in a middle ground here. Personally, mm-hmm. I, I don't have the expertise or judgment to reach a conclusion on on uh, the, the technical points they're arguing about in the experiment here. So I, I guess I would just say I'd have to consider the 2016 results very interesting, but heavily caveated until we see successful replication. Yeah. Now, I will say that um, the, uh, the the lead uh, author on this paper, uh, Monica uh, Gagliano, uh, I've I've seen her. Uh, I've seen, she was part of a panel uh, discussion at the World Science Festival back in 2019, I believe. Intelligence without brains. Uh, that also featured ant scientist Mark Moffat, uh, whose work we've mm. discussed in the show before. Oh yeah, and um, uh, yeah, uh, Monica Gagliano is research associate professor in evolutionary ecology at the Biological uh, Intelligence Lab at Southern Cross University in Australia. Her primary areas of research are marine ecology and plant cognitive ecology. Uh, she also has a book out, which uh, I, I was not aware of until I was looking back uh, into her work here. But uh, the book is "Thus Spoke the Plant." Yeah, she seems to be one of the leading figures in the plant cognition domain these days. She, she wrote another article uh, in 2018 summing up some of this recent stuff in Ecologia called Plants Learn and Remember, Let's Get Used to It. <laughs> or actually, sorry, that had three authors. She was the, the first listed author. Well, I will say she did seem to have you know, a good sense of humor about, uh, about herself and about uh, uh, her area of research when I, uh, when I saw her give that talk. And by the way, if you want to, to see that uh, talk for yourself, uh, you can find it at uh, the World Science Festival's website. Just look for Intelligence Without Brains. They have the full, the full talk up there. Now, I guess we've already covered this a good bit earlier on, so I won't get into too much detail. I did have a few notes about some other articles I was reading, for example, by uh, one author you already cited who came up in um, in Pollen's uh, uh, New Yorker piece, uh, Lincoln Taiz, who has been a, a critic of so-called plant cognition or plant neurobiology um, and uh, comments by researchers uh, from this camp. Though a lot of this seemed aimed at, at the kind of thing you were talking about where they're objecting to certain extrapolations or characterizations, uh, extrapolations from or characterizations of this research rather than the research itself, like um, rejecting the idea of plant consciousness and so forth. Of course, that opens its own can of worms because, uh, of course, you know, there's no actual test for consciousness even in humans. Consciousness can only be experienced directly in the self and then inferred to exist by analogy in other humans and possibly in non-human animals. But they've got a number of arguments based on the uh, the just physical anatomical qualities of plants that that say you know it's very unlikely they would have the whatever kind of computational complexity the I don't know calcium channels or anything like that in plants might possess it would be unlikely to possess the level of complexity that we see in animal brains and that we assume to be the necessary basis for consciousness. But anyway, I mean, so I think where we're left right now, at least from my point of view, is that we're we're still in the middle of a research program. There, there's still mm-hmm. like a, you know, a lot of basic research in plant cognition going on that maybe in five or ten more years we will have a better idea of, of uh, what the direct evidence is that, uh, about what plants can actually do. And then it might we might be more well-equipped to argue about whether it actually counts as X, Y, or Z that we, you know, words we use to associate with the mental phenomena of humans. 
Yeah, yeah. Or, or I don't know, maybe we'll have different terminology at that point. Um, <laughs> and it, it, but it, it's, yeah, it, we, we end up in the same situation where we're you know, trying to uh, d- divorce the, uh, the study of intelligence and consci- and even potentially consciousness, uh, you know, on a, across multiple species and multiple organisms, uh, despite the fact that we have this uh, this this experience of these things and this this concept of these things that's you know closer than our own breath. One thing this got me thinking about again this is this is we're in the speculative realm now. This is not what's necessarily justified by the existing evidence. But if you were to discover, for example, that maybe you can't justify the claim that plants can think, but you could justify the claim that plants can learn. It would be an important reminder to not blur all different types of mental phenomena together into one single substance. Right. Like there may be important differences between, for example, remembering and reasoning that make one but not the other possible given any physical substrate, say like the kinds of I don't know, computational uh, chemical pathways that would exist in, in plant stems and roots versus in the neural tissue of a human being or an animal. Maybe human brain tissue can do both, but plant tissue can only do one. And this has interesting implications for speculating about alien intelligence. Like if there, there are other types of intelligence out there in the galaxy, we would tend to assume those intelligences to bundle together all the myriad functions performed by our own primate brains. But it's important to remember those are like specifically primate brains. we got a very particular type mm-hmm. of meat in our heads, and the type of intelligence we're familiar with is what that meat can do. So what if like <laughs> there's another physical substrate that's unfamiliar to us and that constitutes what we would think of as the alien brain? Whatever that is, should we be trying to think of it as capable of some of the subdivided parts of intelligence, what we think of as intelligence, but not others. Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, and you know, I, I guess I would hope that we're at least reaching towards a point where we're going to have a more, you know, um, complicated understanding of what memory and learning are, because uh, we're already having to contend not just with with human and animal memory and, and learning, but also machine learning and, and yeah. machine memory and, you know, potentially... Uh, uh, plant um, analogs as well, and so yeah, it just it kind of hopefully forces to to push the the human experience and the human model a little further aside and realize that yeah this is this is an example of a broader thing and it is not the thing itself. Like I, I, I'm imagining a a sci-fi concept, a story about encountering aliens that maybe if this makes any sense, what if they could do something that looks like intelligence because they can learn and adapt, but they can't do what we would think of as reasoning. Yeah. Like they can learn, but they can't think. I don't know. I'm not sure that even makes sense, but uh, but I don't know. It, it gets my gears cranking. All right, we just had a brief conversation off mic. Are we going to... Are we going to cap this series here? Are we going to go more with the, the the interesting hidden lives of plants, plant cognition, so-called plant communication, things like that? Maybe we'll just leave it a mystery. You'll be surprised next Tuesday, which uh, whether we're on to something else or whether the plants continue. Yeah. And in the meantime, you've, you've got some hanging out to do with your various house plants and, and plants in the yard, maybe plants out in the wild. Um, you know, if, if they're within your house, may, maybe play them a little Starship. <laughs> play them a little, uh, some, some prints and, uh, and some of the other musical examples we mentioned in these episodes. Uh, we're not saying it's going to do anything, but it might be fun to hang out with your plan and listen to Starship. 
You know, I think of it like uh, the the semantic contents of talking to your dog. Like uh, <laughs> the dog's mostly just going to be responding to the tone of your voice. If I tell my dog he's a he's a bad boy in a good boy voice, he's probably going to be super happy. But you know, I want to say good boy anyway because that makes me feel good. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close it out here. Uh, but as always, you can find episodes, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed every Thursday and Tuesday. Um, you will also find our short form artifact or monster fact episodes on Wednesdays, Lister Mail on Mondays, and on Friday, well, we do a little Weird House Cinema. That's when we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. And then on the weekend, we have a Vault episode uh, that is a rerun from yesteryear. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson, though he is out this week. So big thanks to our excellent guest audio producer, Paul Deccant. Huge thanks for stepping in this week, Paul. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.